I'd like to begin our study this morning by considering the question, what is worship? In other words, what does it look like to truly worship the Lord? What does it mean to be worshipers? Is worship just about the songs we sing right before the Bible study? Or is worship much more than that? Is worship about the awe-inspiring adoration that fills our hearts as we consider the mystery and the majesty, even the mercy of our Messiah? With these questions in mind, it's my hope that this study today will not only help us to understand what worship is, but that this study will also help us to become true worshipers of the Lord. With this as the goal, we're going to spend our time this morning considering three examples of worship. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see that we worship the Lord first through exaltation. Secondly, we'll consider how we worship the Lord through consecration. Thirdly, and finally, we'll consider how we worship the Lord through devotion. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Here we learn about the way that the people worshipped our Savior as he was dying on the cross there at Calvary. And as you make your way to the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that we've actually spent several weeks now looking at Luke's account on the, uh, of the night when our Savior was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then, and then he was condemned to the death of the cross. And while it's true that the religious rulers, as well as the Roman soldiers, mocked our Messiah as he died for our sins there on the cross, it's also true that there were those who began to worship our Savior as he bore our sins upon that tree. With this as the focus, I want to pick up our study of Luke chapter 23. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 44, here Luke tells us that it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Now here in these verses we find Luke. He's describing this darkness that covered the, the land at the time of Christ's crucifixion. And in order to understand the unusual nature of this darkness, it'll help us to know that this darkness began at the sixth hour, which was noon. So this darkness began at noon, and it lasted until the ninth hour, which was actually two o'clock in the afternoon. Simply put, this darkness occurred during the time of day when the sun was directly overhead, and at the same time, it's also important to note that this darkness couldn't be explained by a natural solar eclipse. And the reason why is due to the fact that this was the time of the Passover, and the Passover always occurs during a full moon. Therefore, we can say for certain that this was not some sort of natural eclipse of the sun. This was precisely the point that the second century historian named Julius Africanus was making when he wrote this. He says, and I quote, The most dreadful darkness fell over the whole world, 
The rocks were torn apart by an earthquake, and much of Judea and the rest of the land was torn down. Thallus calls this darkness an eclipse of the sun in the third book of his histories. Without reason, it seems to me. For how are we to believe that an eclipse happened when the moon was diametrically opposite the sun? Now here in this quote, we find this second century historian named Julius Africanus. He's addressing the argument of a first century historian named Thallus, who informed his audience that the darkness that occurred during the crucifixion of Jesus was nothing more than a solar eclipse. Julius Africanus was quick to insist that this is impossible. The reason why? It's because it's impossible to have a solar eclipse when the full moon is diametrically opposite the sun. The same historian, Julius Africanus, also addressed another second century historian. His name was Phlegon. And he wrote this about Phlegon. He, he, he writes, and I quote here, uh, Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak. But what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake? The rending of rocks and the resurrection of the dead. And so great uh, perturbation, easy for me to say, throughout the universe. In other words, Julius Africanus here is actually referring to a statement that Phlegon made in his 13th book where he informs his audience about this eclipse that occurred in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. And according to Phlegon, this took place at the sixth hour as day turned into night and so that the stars could be seen in the sky. And as we consider these extra biblical accounts, as we consider how Phlegon and Thallus and Julius Africanus, they all speak about this darkness that covered the land, we can see from this that there is good extra biblical reason to believe that Luke's account is accurate, that it's a reliable source of information regarding the day of Christ's crucifixion. Now, with that being the case, I want to take a closer look at Luke's account, beginning here in Luke 23, verse 44. Here again, we learn that it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and notice, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the veil there in the temple was this thick woven tapestry, which was designed to create a, a strong separation between the holy place in the temple and the holy of holies. And according to one rabbinical source, the thickness of the veil was about a hand's breadth. And according to an early, early Jewish tradition, the temple veil was as thick as a man's hand, although this might be an exaggeration. But regardless of the specific message, measurement of this, uh, this veil, uh, we can be certain that it wasn't easily torn. We can be certain that this veil wasn't easily torn. And yet it's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, where we learn that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Think about that for a moment. This really thick tapestry was torn in two from top to bottom. Not being the case, it seems to me that the creator of heaven and earth was the one who tore the temple veil from heaven all the way down to earth as Christ Jesus was being crucified there on the cross. 
And in this way, he was helping his chosen people to understand that sinners are now able to enter the throne room of grace by faith in the cross of Christ. Now, with this as the focus, I want to back up and take another look here at Luke chapter 23. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 46. Here Luke writes, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now here in this verse, we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually quoting the 31st Psalm as he cries out to God the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not only that, but it's in the 19th chapter of John's gospel account. There we learn that the Lord Jesus also declared, it is finished. Or in accounting terms, account paid in full. And it was at that moment when he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Christ Jesus waited until the work was finished before surrendering his spirit to God the Father. And now that he has finished the work necessary for our salvation, the born-again believer can now rest in the free gift of grace by which we worship our Savior. Now with this as the goal, I want to take a moment to ask, well, what does it mean to worship then? What does it mean to worship? And while it's not uncommon for Christians to equate worship with the songs we sing to our Savior, you know, right before the Bible study, it's important for us to understand that worship is so much more than just these songs of praise. In order to prove my point, it'll help us to understand that the word worship, it actually finds its root in an old English word which was used of the honor, the reverence, and the glory that is due to the divine being we call God. Worship, it comes from the idea of worthship, which carries with it the concept of something that is worthy of our adoration. And in this sense, the word worship speaks of the way that we glorify God as we exalt his holy name. With all this in mind, I want to consider the example of worship that we find here in our text today. So if you would look with me once again here at Luke 23, I want to draw your attention back to verse 47. Here Luke writes that the centurion, when he saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now, it's important for us to realize that this Roman centurion was probably the same soldier who orchestrated the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. This was the man who oversaw the hundred soldiers who were there uh, on, on uh, Calvary. And so he's probably the guy who called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus and orchestrated uh, the men who nailed Jesus to the cross. And I have no doubt that this is the same centurion who oversaw many, many crucifixions. This is not his first crucifixion. He probably had this position for several years. And yet this is the first time that he witnessed the sun go dark during the crucifixion. This is the first time that he felt the earth shake during a crucifixion. This is the first time that he heard a veil ripping in the temple, which was very close to this place. And after looking at all of these events and seeing a man hanging from a cross, praying for the forgiveness of those who had nailed him to that cross, he ends up glorifying God. He glorifies God as he exalts the name of Jesus Christ. 
that word glorified. Well, it's translated from the Greek word doxazo. And this word was used of those who magnify the dignity and the worthiness of the one that they want to honor. The same Greek word was also used in reference to the worship that people express as they exalt the name of the person that's being praised. And that's exactly what this Roman soldier was doing as he glorified God. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 47, they put it like this. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. Here in this translation, we find this Greek word, doxazo, translated into our English word, worshiped. And as we consider the way in which this Roman centurion was moved to worship the Lord by exalting the name of Jesus Christ, I believe that we would all do well to learn a lesson from the way that he worshiped God. And with this as the focus, I want to take some time to consider how those who truly worship God will exalt the name of Jesus Christ. To prove my point, I should remind you about a statement that Paul made in Philippians chapter 2. Here, here we learn that God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus. God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father. Now think about this for a moment. If it's true that God the Father exalted the name of Christ Jesus above every other name, then doesn't it also stand to reason that this is the best way for us to glorify God? If it's true that God the Father exalted the name of Jesus above every name, then this is the best way for us to glorify God the Father by exalting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that God the Father has. And in this way, as we exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we become believers who are worshiping the Lord as we sing the praises of our Savior. I like the way that King David put it in the 145th Psalm verses 1 and 2 where he declares, I will exalt you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. What a beautiful example of what it looks like to worship the Lord by exalting his name. And from this, we see then that those who want to worship the Lord should glorify God with proclamations of exaltation as we exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but listen, those who want to worship the Lord should also glorify God through the personal dedication of consecration. Now, with this as the focus, let's make our way uh, back to Luke chapter 23. I want to pick up our study of Luke 23, beginning at verse 48. Here we learn that the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member 
a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Now here in these verses, we learn about the reaction of those who were there to witness our Savior's sacrifice. And we must not fail to remember here that this was the same crowd that had just called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. Yeah, it was just hours before when they were calling for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But then they saw everything that had taken place. They saw daylight turn to darkness. They, they felt the earth begin to shake. I have no doubt that they heard that veil in the temple ripping from top to bottom. And that's when the angry mob began to realize they had been wrong. Yeah, they called for his crucifixion, but after seeing the way that he died on the cross and all the things that happened, they realized this was more than a man. As a result, I believe their hearts were filled with grief. They began to feel the pain of their guilt. And it's for this reason, I believe, they began to beat their chests as they returned to their homes without repentance. At the same time, we also find the female followers of the Lord Jesus keeping their distance as they processed everything they saw. Without debate, there was a, a great deal to process, which again includes the darkened sun, the earthquake that shook, you know, the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. You know, they're, they're processing all of these things. And while all of these things provided the people with proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the women were still struggling to understand how can the Messiah allow the Romans to kill him on a cross and yet he still be the Messiah. You know, the disciples don't really grasp this until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not until after the resurrection where they start making sense of, oh, okay, so you had to die to, to you know, pay for our sins so that we can be saved. And okay, but at this point in time, they're just processing all of this information. They're trying to make sense of how their Messiah could be killed on this cross. And in the processing, you know, they decide to, rather than reacting in some sort of irrational way, you know, they, they just watch to see what's happening. They, they look to see where the body's being taken and these sorts of things. And with all this as the focus, I, I want to notice again that it was actually a Pharisee named Joseph who came along and claimed the corpse of Christ. Not only that, but it's there in the middle of verse 50 where we learn that Joseph was a council member, or in other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which remember, this is the religious ruler, the group of rulers who had plotted to kill Christ Jesus. And, and while it's true that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, Luke also assured his audience here that Joseph was a good man and a just man, and he didn't consent to the, their decision nor their deed. The reason why was because Joseph had become a secret follower of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's in the 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel account. There the apostle Matthew writes, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In John's gospel account, we also learn that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. 
And so we know that this man named Joseph from Arimathea, he was in fact a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that he was unwilling to agree with their, uh, the Sanhedrin's decisions and actions, you know, and, and, and he was unwilling to, to, to cast his vote in with those who were plotting against the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Joseph truly believed that the Lord Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. Not only that, but he also believed that the Lord Jesus would usher in the kingdom of God. And it's for this reason that he worshipped God. And he did this by consecrating himself for this service of the Lord. To make my case, let's take a closer look at Luke's account, beginning here in Luke 23, verse 52. Here again, we learn that Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. Now, as we take another look at these verses, we must not fail to grasp all of the consequences that followed from Joseph's decision. Uh, First of all, I would point out that Joseph decided to approach Pilate in order to ask for the body of Christ Jesus. And as he did, you have to understand, he was simultaneously placing himself on Pilate's radar, which could have caused complications with the Romans. He was basically stepping forward and saying, yeah, I'll retrieve the body here because I'm one of his followers. This could have caused complications between the Romans and his own family. Not only that, but when Joseph decided to handle the corpse of Christ Jesus, he was also choosing to exclude himself from the Passover celebration according to the Old Testament law. Think about it. It's in Numbers chapter 19 where Moses declares this, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. Now, as we consider this Old Testament rule, I should take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus was actually being crucified on the Passover And the Passover is the feast that kicks off the festival of of unleavened bread, which lasts, lasts for a week. And this celebration included a time of corporate worship there at the temple. And so the, the, the Passover would begin with worship at the temple. The, feast, uh, the festival of unleavened bread would then conclude with worship there at the temple. But Joseph wouldn't be able to attend the final worship service there at the temple. And, and the reason why is because he would still be unclean after touching the corpse of Christ Jesus. And he knew this. And yet he was willing to exclude himself from that worship service because he was worshiping the Lord in a different way. It's important to remember, Joseph was also, again, I remind you, a secret disciple. And so his decision to go and request and then retrieve the body of Christ, well, this not only excluded him from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but this decision would also draw the attention of his connection with Christ Jesus. In other words, he would no longer be a secret disciple the minute he retrieved the body of Jesus Christ. 
In this way, Joseph was not only placing himself on the radar of the Romans, but he was also risking uh, and and possibly even sacrificing his prominent position uh, amongst the peers there in the Sanhedrin. And what's even more than that, he he was risking his own life just to care for the lifeless body of the Lord. Remember, his peers in the Sanhedrin, they were the same guys who had called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And with that, I can't help but to wonder, what would they be willing to do to someone who was in their ranks and yet betrayed them? Would they excommunicate him as a heretic? Would they take control of the land that had been promised to his family? Would they cast him out of Israel? Would they accuse him of blasphemy and condemn him to the cross as well? All of these things are very possible. And yet, despite all of these concerns, I have no doubt that that Joseph considered all of this. And yet, rather than allowing the fear of men to ensnare him, he stepped forward in faith, claiming the body of, of Jesus Christ. Incredible faith. We should also notice here that Joseph used his own resources as he wrapped the lifeless body of the Lord in linen. And he not only used his own linen, but he also used his own tomb as he placed the corpse of Christ in his own personal catacomb. We also learned that Nicodemus was there helping out. And so here these two men who had been secret disciples of Jesus Christ stepped forward to serve the Lord in this way, to serve the body of Christ by wrapping him in linen and placing him in a tomb. Now I can't help but to wonder why these secret disciples of Christ were finally ready to sacrifice everything just to bury a body. Why did they feel that now was the time to step forward? Now was the time to reveal themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, if I had to guess why, it's because they wanted to worship the Lord. And with this as the goal, Joseph and Nicodemus both worshiped the Lord by consecrating themselves for this simple act of service. Now, just to be clear, you know, the word consecrate, it's used of that which is irrevocably dedicated to the worship of God through a solemn ceremony. And I believe that's exactly what Joseph was doing when he went to claim the corpse of Christ and then place him in his own tomb. I believe that Joseph was worshiping God And the way that he worshiped God was through the sacrifice of his position, through the sacrifice of his power and prestige, all just to claim the body of Christ. He worshiped God as he dedicated his own tomb, his own time, his own linens, his own life, all for the body of Christ. And as Joseph stepped forward to publicly care for the corpse of Christ, he was worshiping the Lord by consecrating himself as he set himself apart from the Sanhedrin. That's what he did. He set himself apart from those who called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. And in this way, this was a consecration ceremony. In light of his example, we should take a moment to examine our own lives And we should do this by asking, am I still a secret disciple of Jesus? Am I still a secret disciple of Jesus Christ? Or am I worshiping the Lord as I consecrate my life for the body of Jesus Christ? 
With this question in mind, I want to consider the encouragement that Peter presents in his first epistle. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. You see, it's here in the second chapter of 1 Peter. Here we find the Apostle Peter. He's actually encouraging his audience to become believers who are consecrated priests for the glory of God. That's what he's helping us to understand, that those who trust in Jesus Christ should become a a, a consecrated priesthood so that we can proclaim his praises. And I want to consider how the apostle puts it here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look with me there, beginning at verse 9, because here Peter declares, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Now, I've been called special many times, but this is in a different sense. We are his own special people. And to what end? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here in these verses, we find Peter, he's helping his audience to understand that every born-again believer has been called to become this royal priesthood, that we are to be consecrated by faith in Jesus Christ for this position of priests. And, And we've been called then as priests to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And with this as the goal, we must realize that those who want to properly proclaim the praises of God, we should first make sure that we are the consecrated Christians who have set ourselves apart from the sinful Sanhedrin of this world. We must set ourselves apart from the fleshly lusts of this world as we consecrate our lives for the glory of God. And the best way that we can do this is to allow our good works to become acts of worship as we care for the body of Christ. And in this sense, I'm actually referring to the spiritual body of Christ, which is the church today. That we've been called to set our lives apart from this world so that we can serve the Lord Jesus Christ here in his body, the church. And as we serve the Lord as his priests, we worship him through consecration. And not only should we worship the Lord through proclamations of exaltation and the dedication of consecration, but we should also worship the Lord as we glorify God at living a life of devotion to him. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 23. Here we find the female followers of Jesus now demonstrating their devotion to the Lord. If you would look with me there at Luke chapter 23, I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 54. Here Luke writes... That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And here in the final verses of this chapter, Luke reminds us about the fact that this all took place 
on the day of preparation. Not only that, but Luke also tells us the Sabbath was drawing near. Seeing how the Sabbath day begins with the setting of the sun on Friday evening, Luke seems to be informing us here that it was just before evening on Friday when Joseph entombed the body of Jesus and the Sabbath, of course, drawing near, uh, the woman decided that they needed to hurry up and prepare all the spices and fragrant oils that were uh, part of the customary burial ritual. In our next study, we'll see how they show back up Sunday morning with these spices and oils in order to complete the burial process. And to their surprise, they find nobody in the tomb. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to consider the details that we find here in these verses. And it's first important to understand that there's been a great deal of disagreement and debate about two, uh, two words there in verse 54. The words are preparation and Sabbath. One reason for all the debates and disagreements? Well, it's based on the dilemma that arises from the fact that Jesus had already eaten the Passover supper with his disciples just before his arrest. He ate the Passover supper with his disciples, and then he was arrested. That being the case, many have wondered how Jesus celebrated the Passover only to then die on the prior day of preparation. How can he die on the day of preparation when he's already had the Passover. And I guess one explanation is that Jesus may have had access to a 1981 DeLorean equipped with a flux capacitor. Maybe. Probably not, though. But seriously, though, many sincere Christians have offered their explanations in an attempt to solve this conundrum. And seeing how we don't have time to explore all the various arguments, I just want to present you with the, with the one that makes the most sense to me. I should first remind you that the Jews, they were required to rest from their labor on every Sabbath day, which in a weekly context was Saturday. So the Sabbath rest was every Saturday. And it's for this reason that Friday actually became known as the day of preparation because they had a lot to prepare before they could just take an entire day off with no work. To prove my point, you can read Mark chapter 15. It's there where Mark informs us that the preparation day is the day before the Sabbath. Not the day before the Passover, but the day before the Sabbath. So every Friday was known as preparation day, and they would prepare uh, for the Sabbath rest. That being the case, well, it only stands to reason that Jesus died on Friday, which was the day before the Sabbath. We should also notice that the female followers of Jesus, well, they are determined here to observe the Sabbath according to the law. And it's for this reason that they quickly, after seeing where the body of Jesus was placed, that they quickly went and started preparing the oils and the spices, but then they had to stop. Why? Because the Sabbath was upon them. Notice again in verse 55, here again we learn that the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And then we'll pick back up next week and see that they return on Sunday. So in the preparation of spices and fragrant oils, it wasn't enough time from the time of seeing where the body of Jesus is placed until Sabbath. There wasn't enough time to get it all ready. So chances are this, again, was at the end of the day on Friday, just before the sun set. As soon as the setting sun gave way to Saturday, they immediately began to observe the Sabbath day according to the commandment that the Lord gave to Moses. Or in other words, the women who were there to worship Jesus 
were also devoted followers of his holy word. To prove my point, let's consider what the word says about the Sabbath. I should first remind you about the fourth commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20. It's there where Moses writes, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. Here in Exodus 20, we find the Lord presenting his people with the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath law. And according to this law, the people were required to rest on the seventh day of every week, which is Saturday. Just to be clear about this, you should know that the children of Israel, they were required to rest from anything that would be considered work. This includes activities such as gathering wood, kindling fires, Baking, cooking, buying, selling, all of this was forbidden on the Sabbath. They were restricted to the distance that they were able to travel. They were restricted in the task of uh, bearing burdens from one domain to another because they weren't allowed to work on Saturday. In order to understand the reason why the the Lord Lord required the Israelites to rest on on the Sabbath day, it's important to remember uh, that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord our God. Remember, he created in six days, rested on the seventh. Turned around and said, just as I did it, so should you. Work six days and rest on the seventh. Ever wonder why we don't have a 10-day week or a 20-day week or a five-day week? Well, God determined through the creation. He created for six days, rested on the seventh, turned around and told the Israelites to do the same thing. To more fully grasp the reason for this day of rest, listen, the Lord was calling them to set aside every distraction on the Sabbath so that they could devote this day to the worship of their creator. That's what the Sabbath was designed for, to worship the creator. And as we consider the way that the women here were determined to rest on the Sabbath according to the commandment, it's important for us to realize that their devotion was to the word of God, to follow what it says. And in this way, they worshiped. Their devotion to God's word was an act of obedience that became worship to the Lord. In light of their example, we too should learn how to worship the Lord according to the Sabbath law. And with this as the goal, I have to ask, what did you do yesterday? Did you work? I'm just kidding. Let's, let's really get into what this means. Because now in the church age, we actually have a, a new dispensation of information that we have to consider when it comes to living a life of devotion to God's word. And I want to consider something that Jesus said to the Israelites who were rejecting him there in the first century. So if you would, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. And as you make your way to the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. No, instead, he came to fulfill the law on our behalf so that at the end of his life there on the cross, he could say, it is finished. Account paid in full. He came to fulfill the law on our behalf so that we could enter into the Sabbath rest of our Savior. And according to Jesus, we enter into that Sabbath rest by faith in his finished work. 
Let's consider how Christ Jesus puts it here in Matthew chapter 11. If you would look with me here at verse 28, it's there at verse 28 where the Lord declares, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here in these verses, we find the Lord of the Sabbath encouraging the Israelites to enter into the rest that only he can provide. And while there are many who believe that we're still under the Sabbath law of the old covenant, many who would come along and say, well, you, have to, you have to keep all of the law. You have to keep the Sabbath law. Listen, I can assure you that those who trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we've already entered into our Sabbath rest because the Sabbath day was actually pointing to Jesus. The Sabbath day points to Jesus. And in Jesus, we receive his Sabbath rest because he's finished the work. That being the case, we should devote every day of our life to the worship of the Lord because every day, Christian, is our Sabbath rest. I like the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14. It's there where he declares one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. From this, we can see that the Christian who decides to devote Saturday to our Savior, well, that Christian worships the Lord. And the Christian who decides to devote Sunday to our Savior, that Christian is worshiping the Lord. I actually encourage you to devote every day of the week to our Savior, except for Monday, because we all know that Monday's the devil's day, right? That's what I learned from Garfield, that crazy cat. No, but seriously, listen, those who want to worship our Savior, we should devote every single day of the week to the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship every single day of the week. In him, we are in our Sabbath rest because he's finished the work necessary for our salvation. In order to further grasp this incredible truth, I want to take a moment to consider a conversation that Christ Jesus had with a woman from Samaria who went to Jacob's well to retrieve some water. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's quickly turn to John chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Samaritans actually built their own temple because the Jews wouldn't allow them uh, into the temple there uh, in Jerusalem. And so they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And, and, and the reason why was because this was the mountain where Moses instructed the Israelites to declare the blessings of the Lord. And so the Samaritans had their temple on Mount Gerizim and the Jews had their temple uh, there on um, uh, Mount Moriah. And, and they would argue with one another about which temple was the 
proper temple? Which one was the right temple uh, to worship the Lord at? And we find a little bit of this debate here in John chapter 4. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 20. Here this Samaritan woman declares to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, to sum this up with simplicity, listen, the worship of God is no longer about a location. The worship of God is no longer about a day of the week. The hour now is when God is looking for those who will worship him wherever, whenever, in spirit and in truth. Worship is no longer about a specific day. Worship is no longer about a specific location. It's about a spiritual relationship that we have with God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ according to the power of the Holy Spirit by whom we are able to worship in spirit and in truth. And with that, I remind you, God is spirit. And he's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And when he looks at you, does he see someone who is worshiping? in spirit and in truth. God help us. As we begin to wrap up this message, it's important for us to realize that, you know, worship is so much more than just showing up to church and singing songs. Worship is so much more than than just the songs we sing on Sunday. Worship is a way of life. Worship is a way that the born-again believer walks by faith in Jesus as we determine to glorify God each and every day. And with this as the goal, I hope you'll remember that those who want to worship the Lord ought to engage in the exaltation of the Lord, much like the centurion who glorified God as he exalted the name of Jesus Christ. Those who want to worship the Lord ought to Engage in the personal dedication of priestly consecration, much like Joseph of Arimathea, who consecrated his tomb and his time and his treasure for the glory of God. Those who want to truly worship the Lord should live a life of devotion, much like the women who devoted their lives to the worship of Jesus by following the truth of God's word. With all of this in mind, I would remind you in closing that God the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, we should become those believers who are worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's for this reason that I encourage every Christian to worship the Lord each and every day with public proclamations of praise. Let's worship the Lord as we consecrate our time, our talents, 
and our treasure for the glory of God. And let's live a life of devotion as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the truth of God's word. And in this way, we will become those believers who glorify God as we become the true worshipers of the one who alone is worthy of our worship. Let's pray.